I'm Alicia Michalaisic-Gonzalez, an emergency physician and the clinical training lead for the California Bridge Program. And this is episode two of our Emerging Trends training series, Precipitated Withdrawal and What You Need to Know. Today, we are joined by Dr. Ed Pilar and Dr. Rebecca Trotsky for a conversation in an FAQ on precipitated withdrawal that is prompted by buprenorphine initiation. And what hopefully you'll find is that this doesn't have to be scary for the patient or for you as the provider. This audio was recorded during a live virtual training session in February 2022. Please note that any brand names used by our guests are purely out of habit or what we're familiar with in our practice. There are no financial disclosures for myself or either of our guests today. Let's start by having our guests introduce themselves. We'll start with Dr. Rebecca Trotsky. Hey everybody, I'm Rebecca Chotsky. I'm a family medicine doctor that has the honor of working in the ER department. I run an urgent care center at LACUSC, one of our biggest safety net hospitals in Los Angeles. And I also work kind of at the interface of jail health and um, other kinds of acute care medicine. And I have the honor and privilege of being one of the founding members of California Bridge. So really bringing quick start treatment for addiction to the forefronts of all of our hospitals. And uh, that's why I'm here. And according to one of the people in the chat, you have the coolest glasses, which you absolutely do. Dr. Pilar. I'll second that emotion. So good morning, good <laughs> afternoon, good evening to all. I am an attending emergency medicine faculty physician at Arrowhead Regional Medical Center in Colton, California. And so I'm also board certified in addiction medicine. And I also have the privilege of working in our bridge ER program, a bridge community, MAT program, as well as a county correctional institution MAT program. And it's a supreme uh, privilege to be a part of this. So I, I appreciate your time. Awesome. I think all three of us would probably agree this, this doing this work is one of the best parts of the many hats that we wear. We love this job. And so let's get right into it. I feel like when we do our technical assistance and we're supporting our sons and our sites out there, the concern about precipitated withdrawal is the hottest, most common conversation that we are having these days. So maybe we could first address, like, why is that? Where is this fear coming from? Why are we so concerned about precipitated withdrawal? Yeah, I can start maybe from a structural point of view. I did a lot of X waiver training. So this is the training that the government used to mandate for providers in order to get the privilege of prescribing buprenorphine to our community members. That recently was waived for many clinicians. However, before then, we all had to sit through eight-hour classes. And the actual technology of buprenorphine is so simple and elegant. It's probably something that's like eight seconds for many clinicians to understand. So the content and modules that were prescribed by the government to deliver to clinicians really focused on things like precipitated withdrawal for a long number of hours. So as somebody who trained thousands of doctors, um, I, over the years, like tried to really minimize the fear of the x waiver training and um, deliver it in a way that did not overemphasize uh, precipitated withdrawal. I do believe structurally that the fact that we had to give eight hours, we had to fill those eight hours, meant that a lot of content and a lot of talking and a lot of dialogue initially started about precipitated withdrawal that was completely unfounded, the level of hype that we put around it. Ed? Yeah, so I would, uh, I'll go on to say that uh, I think everyone would be in violent agreement that our patient population isn't exactly known for their veracity. So what I've learned um, over many years uh, is that connection is much more important than communication because our patients 
They know stigma, they know judgment, shame, and in all cases are coming to the ER in some form of suffering, not to mention withdrawal. And they're probably anticipating more of the same. So we rarely get more than one chance to connect. And that is part of the art of medicine for me. Um, and so taking the extra minute or two, especially in a busy ED and in, in my world, where we're always task-oriented and it's probably the same in everybody else's facility, it's very important to, to give that patient the opportunity to feel like you care for them. Because as we all know, patients don't care about what you know, they care about how you make them feel. So to read between the lines a little bit, I think what you're both saying is some of this concern about precipitated withdrawal came from this onerous, probably unnecessary, very, very long eight and 24 hour training we had to do before where they talked about this issue a lot more than it probably needed to be talked about, which created some concern. And then also there's this patient end of it where our patients know this happens. They've heard about it. They're scared about it. Um, and so perhaps there are experiences they've had and we're not taking the time to do that conversation and address it up front. Maybe we don't have the comfort level um, to address it up front. And so it's an angsty thing for everyone because we know, like, like you were just saying, Ed, we can lose their trust. This is our one chance to treat a patient, get them in treatment. And if we mess it up and do this, they're gone. They're gone from us for forever. That's, that's what I feel like I hear you're saying. I would also say that I think that's a fear of physicians. If we mess up, then we're never going to have this opportunity again. The reality is we often see our community members many times over and we have a chance to apologize. Like, I, sorry, I made a mistake and this time let's try better. And um, that's not always uh, the safe road for physicians to feel comfortable in. Um, I think the other thing with withdrawal is it's the expertise of our patients and our community members with opioid use disorder. It's not necessarily the lived experience of physicians who've gone through multiple years of training. That said, of course, there's lots of physicians with opioid use disorder who understand it very intimately. Um, but for many people, it's one of those disconnects between a lived experience and something they read about. And so they're trying to you know, go through a checklist and make sure as a physician, I'm not doing anything wrong with this fear of if I do mess up, just like Ed said, oh no, I, you know, I, I possibly killed this patient because now they're going to go and overdose. And I had this one moment and I failed. And so that's like how doctors think often, like it's all on me. And if I fail, then it's over, right? <laughs> we all know that's not true. We have relationships we build with people over time. My community health workers are like, I talked to that patient five times since you saw them last week, right? Like our, our community members and our extenders are going into the community and talking to people. So um, I think that's part of like how doctors think too. Like I have this one moment, if I don't get it right, I'm, I'm over we're a done crash, you know? And, and that's part of, I think, the weird culture that we come from. Sure. And I, I think when we were prepping for this, you, a really cool thing that you told me you say is you'll tell patients, um, you know, withdrawal is not fun, but my goal is to make this your best withdrawal experience ever, like a supported version of that withdrawal. And it doesn't mean you're not going to have any symptoms, but we're going to do our best to make this the least painful, but the most smooth. And so thinking about that, you know, both of you have addressed the angst in part having to do with the importance of that pre-starting, what we do before we start um, with a, a person who uses fentanyl being just as important as the piece where we give the medication. What does that look like for each of you clinically? Like you've got a patient who uses fentanyl, you're going to start the MIT process. What does that conversation contain in your lived experience with these patients? Yeah. So for me, again, um, it goes back to the basics of uh, connection, and that's aid it, that's sitting down, eye contact, and um, body language, using empathic verbal gestures to acknowledge 
their suffer their their current state of suffering. Um, uh, so I'll th- I'll say things like, you know, I'm glad you came in. I can't, you know, I can only imagine how this feels to go through this. And you know, I want a re- I want to reassure you, this is a judgment free, a safe place, and you can be honest with me because that through that honesty, I'll be able to treat you better and and safer. And then I'll explore, I'll ask certain questions because I think there are some risk factors to precipitated withdrawal. And patients, again, they're not likely to be forthcoming that they took a methadone dose 12 hours before they came in because they didn't know what else to do. Um, or, or they say they're only using meth or Xanax or anything. For me, anything from the street is fentanyl. Mm-hmm. So I assume all patients are coming in with fentanyl contamination. Um, and I, I reassure them that uh, I do the shared decision-making, goal-directed, goal patient autonomy is fundamental, and let them uh, understand uh, what it is that the next step's going to be while I explore where their anxiety could be coming from or their hesitation. So it's explaining to patients, this is why I'm asking you these questions, saying the word precipitated withdrawal, owning it, you know, not being afraid to bring that up and say, are you concerned about that? And using that as a gauge to get honest answers to help us do our best. You know, did you take methadone? It's okay if you did. I just need to know. And here's why. Those kinds of of conversations. Yeah. An important question I've learned to ask is, have you ever put yourself into rapid withdrawal or precipitated withdrawal? They may not understand what precipitated withdrawal is. And if they've had that experience, that that helps me tailor their, uh, their treatment plan. But also, I might have to spend a lot more time in bringing them into what the next step's going to be, should they decide to do it. Yeah. Can I just interject? Because I don't think I ever say the word precipitated withdrawal to my patients, and I rarely say it to my learning clinicians who work with me. I um, want to know what this patient's experience with withdrawal is. So um, I'm like, when was the last time you were in withdrawal and what was that like for you? And I'll say that in a variety of um, language ways, but I definitely give the ownership of the experience to the patient and let them know that they're the expert of withdrawal and how it feels in their body. And so usually people are very, um, very cognizant of what that looks like and feels like. And then I'm listening for their words of how they describe it back to me. And then I'll echo it back to them like, oh, that sounds like a lot of muscle pain, a lot of belly aches and diarrhea. Those are signs of withdrawal. Have you ever put that, you know, those symptoms together with that word? Some people really have, they're like, yeah, dude, that's my withdrawal. But other people are like, oh, I just like, they don't really have that kind of label for those symptoms, right? So I'm like, that's a withdrawal. When you feel that pretty bad, start your buprenorphine because this will hopefully be the last time you're going to feel withdrawal. And I also, you know, temper it with nine out of 10 of my patients start buprenorphine or suboxone. No problems. They feel great. They feel like their old selves again. Every once in a while, we get the timing wrong. We get the dose wrong. Something's just different about their bodies. That's okay. We'll work with you. And, you know, come two days from now, three days from now, you're going to feel awesome on this medication. So today might be a rocky day. Hope it's not. I hope it's a perfect day for you. But here's what we can do. If it's not rocky, there's a lot of things we can do going forward so that they they know that it's most likely going to go well, might be a little rocky. That's okay. We anticipate it. We talked about it. We have some tools. They can tell me and I can do next step. They can do next step. And uh, we're in it together. And I think part of this is echoing back that we do need to clarify that when we talk about precipitated withdrawal, and we addressed this a little bit in the last session, much of what patients call precipitated withdrawal or even clinicians isn't 
it's just right. withdrawal. It's just com- you know more complicated because of the substance they used or they have fentanyl stores built up in their in their fat um, of their body, those kinds of things. And so thinking about all of this put together, you know, real precipitated withdrawal is rare. We talked about that in the last session. It's not, it's not as common. What does a patient who's in true precipitated withdrawal look like? And how is that different to a patient who's just experiencing withdrawal that might be a little bit more complicated to treat? Yeah, the, the best way I've heard it described is it's a sudden, quick worsening of your withdrawal symptoms. So I have seen most people say this is precipitated withdrawal and people, I mean, clinicians say, hey, this patient has precipitated withdrawal. When I go talk to the patient, they're just describing continued withdrawal. It's not like they took the buprenorphine 30 minutes later, they feel like poo or like two hours later, they're like suddenly different. It's more like, yeah, the withdrawal got a little bit better, but now it's back again at hour four, you know, eh. And then, you know, that's not necessarily precipitated withdrawal. That's just ongoing or partially managed withdrawal. So um, what the phrase like, uh, you know, rapid onset, um, what was it? It was like pow, like, you know, precipitated withdrawal. It was, you know, like very much a big pow in the face within the 30 minutes to two hour framework where it's a sudden change, of course, like withdrawal and then really bad withdrawal. Um, that happens much less commonly than I still have stimulant withdrawal. I'm still alcohol intoxication and feel miserable from that. But my opioid withdrawal, yeah, it's kind of better, you know, and that all that like murky mess of like real life might not look like your opioid withdrawal stable or getting better. It, that patient might feel better at hour two or three or maybe it might feel worse. And, you know, it's, it's hard for clinicians to just kind of like peek in and be like, how you doing, buddy? And they're like, ah, I still feel like crap. Like that might not be precipitated withdrawal. It's probably not precipitated withdrawal. It's probably all the other things going on in their life. Um, yeah, we've got a, a great comment sort of slash question that brings us to light in here from Chris Thorpe, which says, would not an overdose patient who got Narcan in the field? Is that not the best example of what precipitated withdrawal yeah, looks exactly. like? Yeah, I mean, that's precipitated withdrawal. Um, on purpose. On purpose, right. And uh, but, but typically, like Rebecca was saying, I mean, a lot of patients come in and they feel, or providers think, because they underdose the buprenorphine initially, and they think the patient's spinning out. The problem is, if, if, we, make them, if we make the patient feel worse, we, they're at risk for elopement, they're at risk to be lost to follow-up, they're at risk to never try buprenorphine again. So, you know, in, in the spirit of goal-directed shared decision-making and that education part where you're, you're, you're making that connection with the patient, I will occasionally say, to, you know, I'll often say to patient or family, you, you know, I'm going to treat you this way. This is what I'm going to give you. This is why I'm going to give it to you. This is, the, this is what, how it works. And occasionally, occasionally, you might start to feel a little worse. And if that's the case... I need you to tell me because what I need to give you is more of the stuff I just gave you because what we got what we need to do is, you know, saturate those receptors, you know, try and make it understandable and um, patients appreciate that. Yeah, we have a, a little catchphrase. This is not perfect science, but that we like to say around here, right, is what is precipitated withdrawal? It's when too little buprenorphine is given too soon, right? Too little, too soon. And so 
when we are in that moment, it's, and we're talking again about rare, actually precipitated withdrawal, the patient gets buprenorphine and suddenly, pow, like Dr. Trotsky said, bam, they look terrible. They are sweating. They are in pain. They are agitated all of a sudden, not slowly got worse or kind of rebounded after their medicine wore off, suddenly got worse. What do we do? I'm sitting here. Oh my goodness. I did this. This person I think is really withdrawing precipitously. What do I do now? So it's, I guess in a, once in one sentence, bup and more bup, right? <laughs> bup yeah. and more bup. We we give another sixteen of bup. So the first thing is we've learned the hard way, um, maybe three four years ago, to not mess around with like two milligrams of buprenorphine. If you're doing two or four, it just is like this awkward muddled middle where you're like enough to kick off some opioids from your receptors, but not enough to really stabilize those receptors. And you not, it's just like this murky, like, did that work? Did that not work? If you give a good solid 16 milligrams as your first dose, when somebody's in withdrawal, they're going to feel better like 95% of the time. Um, if they feel a little bit worse, if you give them 16 milligrams again, they're going to feel better 99% of the time. Um, the anxiety that I have seen with our patients when they do have some precipitated withdrawal, um, and that's part of the relationship building. It's part of their like fears about what's going to happen to the future fears about like, Oh my God, I just made this life course change. Like, uh, um, so that anxiety is important to acknowledge because it also then, especially with our younger, like less experienced practitioners with buprenorphine that translates to the clinician's anxiety. Like, Oh my God, I did something wrong. And so, um, Treating the patient with some benzodiazepines orally or IM or IV and another buprenorphine dose help them calm down and feel confident and then treat them again. Usually that gets us through that little blip in the road. And again, it's reassurance that like tomorrow is going to be so much better than today. And we're going to get you to tomorrow very comfortably as best as we can together so that, um, you know, the, the arc of their, their treatment course with buprenorphine continues. So an important couple of notes. There's a lot of questions in the chat about when you do the the mat start. And so I want to just highlight that in our last training, we spent an entire half an hour talking about starting buprenorphine for patients who use fentanyl. So I'd love to refer you back to that training to talk about the dosing, some special considerations, timing, that kind of a thing. So now we've said, okay, well, if we do that, and maybe for whatever complicated reason this patient does precipitously get so much worse, they withdraw. The answer is more bup, a real dose of more buprenorphine, 16 milligrams, 32 milligrams. And that seems to be pretty consistent with expert opinion. What I want to say really quick before we continue is that we're now going to talk about some other nuanced and um experimental, if you will, approaches that are being used by experts. Um, but that's all that we that we have right now, right? So doing this work broadly, um, it's been super well studied doing the buprenorphine. The rest of this is coming to us from a group of experts that we call our, our centers of excellence, hospitals who are doing this work, including where Dr. Pilar and Dr. Trotsky are. Um, and so they're very familiar. We're not about to recommend that you go do all of this. The one piece we are going to recommend you do is bup and more bup and more bup. That is the one main takeaway answer. Did I get that right? Yes. Yeah. And, and, and anecdotally, I, I I think I can say that we've we we've seen patients tolerating fifty to sixty milligrams of bup um, to manage their withdrawal in, in in a safe way, and and sometimes we'll add Ativan in in the mix. Yeah, talk to me about that. How much Ativan and when do you add it? So I, I think anecdotally what we've learned is a cocktail of two milligrams of Ativan plus 16 of bup as the first dose of medication for the patient is useful. 
Um, I've also had uh, good anecdotal experience with adding clonidine to the Ativan as a front load uh, because it takes, you know, it takes five, 10 minutes for the butte to, to sublingually absorb. So for me, what I found is getting a little clonidine 0.1 maybe and then two of Ativan in the GI tract while that's absorbing sometimes makes a difference because of that noradrenergic uh, withdrawal response, should they feel like they're getting worse. Great. So bup and more bup. A lot of people out there who think that adding a little bit of Ativan, and I know some of our our substance use navigators and clinicians have mentioned this to us before, that adding that that little dose of um, lorazepam, a benzodiazepine early on can be really helpful. Um Rebecca. I, I'm looking at the chat as we're going. Yeah. So um, there's a few questions about like how much bup do you use? And my answer is like as much as it needs, right? So I've had patients probably uh, 75 milligrams of buprenorphine. And what I'm basing that on, it, and it wasn't five because it's going to be an even number, but you know, a I can't do math. Um, so, <laughs> you know, 16, hey, you felt slightly better than a little bit worse. Give you another 16. Hey, you felt slightly better and a little bit worse. Then 16 again, slightly better and a little bit worse. Um, and we've done that until the patient's like, yeah, I feel fine now. Um, and and that, you know, you because of the, the technological properties of buprenorphine, you're not going to overdose on buprenorphine. You're just like going to at most waste a dose of buprenorphine because it's not going to do much in the brain. But if the patient's telling you, I feel better right after this dose, it lasted about two hours. I wish I could have that again. There's no harm in giving it to them again. Right. So I when I'm doing home starts from, uh, you know, I see them once in the field, I give them a prescription. They have a bottle of buprenorphine in their pocket and they're managing their withdrawal at home. I give them the wide latitude to say, I recommend taking 16 to tablets under the tongue, two films under your tongue and seeing how that goes. Some people need to repeat it a couple times that day. It's up to you. Um, and it seems like giving people that wide, um, like permission to find the dose that works for them. Like some people are like, I'm going to divide it up into 16 little pieces and take it every 20 minutes. And you're like, okay, whatever, sir. You know, that's fine. Like it's a safe medication and it, it can be, you know, given to the patient to feel, um, comfortable to own how, how they're feeling. Um, when you're in a structured setting, like a hospital or an ER you're, and you have to write an order to a nurse, you know, I'm generally saying, you know, give 16 when the patient tells you they're in moderate withdrawal. So the patient's reporting to the nurse, I'm not having the nurse do a cow score and then try that and then may repeat the dose, you know, up to two times every two hours. Something like that is usually what I'm writing in an inpatient setting where the nurse like needs, needs concrete rules. But, you know, if, if you're at home, go, go take as much as you feel like you need. Most people need, you know, four tablets a day at most, but some people might need more. You know, you tell me at the end of a couple of days how that went. We have a lot of questions popping up in the chat about um, self-starts, home starts. And I, so I just want to put a plug that we will do that in depth in another session. We need a whole 30 minutes to go over all those recommendations. And so for this, though, what I love that I'm hearing you say, Dr. Trotsky, is don't be afraid of high doses of buprenorphine in this setting. It's totally okay. We talked about that last time, too, that sometimes for patients who use a gram of fentanyl, two grams of fentanyl, even three grams of fentanyl, some of our sons in the chat are mentioning these very high doses. Yeah, they're going to need 32, 64, you know, higher doses of buprenorphine, and that's okay. You know, that has to do with what Dr. Pilar was saying, trusting your patient, listening to their body, you know, getting that medication to the right level for them. So if you do precipitate withdrawal, bup and more bup, at least 16 milligrams at a time. Same recheck, time about an hour. Consider adding that Ativan. It can be really helpful, or Razepam and any benzodiazepine. So I'm hoping we can talk about a couple more things that, again, disclaimer, 
are maybe emerging trends. That's the whole point of the series. I'm not recommending you do the following items, but I would love our experts to talk to you about what they're trialing in their practice. And so maybe we start with whichever one of you wants to talk about ketamine. Let's talk about ketamine a little bit. Yeah, I can talk about it. And I use this in my structured setting. So I'm not sending people home with a a pill bottle of ketamine. What I'm doing is, and this is more for my patients who have known opioid use disorder are in the hospital because they ran out in the middle of the street, got hit by a car. And now they have like multiple fractures. Maybe they were intubated and they've gotten a ton of fentanyl and now they're like being extubated. They're very agitated. They're going into opioid withdrawal and the pain's not managed. And we're switching over from, you know, an opioid only agent where we know we just like hose that patient with a ton of fentanyl. We know that there's a ton of fentanyl in that patient and we want to get them to a safe point where they can go home or to a rehab center, wherever, um, you know, with buprenorphine to treat their pain and then stabilize their opioid use disorder. So that is a lot of the questions that my addiction management team is, is getting in the inpatient setting. And on those days, like zero from that transition day one, even day two, we are using sub disassociative dosing of ketamine, um, either orally or, um, you know, IV. And that seems to really work. It seems to address that anxiety. It seems to address that kind of pain titration need. And it has helped patients get through that, um, that shift. So we'll stop the bomu agonist opioids. We'll stop the fentanyl. We'll stop the morphine. Usually six to eight hours later, we're giving a pretty high dose again, 16. Usually we'll do 16 TIG for that, like, you know, again, very high need patient with a lot of pain. And we'll put that sub disassociative dosing underneath it, along with the Tylenol, the NSAIDs and all the other things. And sometimes we'll put on the Ativan as well to help with some of that, like um, anxiousness around those changes. So I'm seeing... I was just saying, what's the goal dose for discharge and some really good questions about um, insurance. Um, one, it is a pain in the butt to get an insurer to do something that's not in their usual wheelhouse. I agree with you. Um, I have not had any problems with uh, TID 8, so that's 24 milligrams. When I, when I sent me home, honestly, I had them at 24 TID, and this was a very unusual case. I'm not saying I do this at all more than this one time. I was saying I'm treating pain in addition to opioid use disorder, and that's why I'm using a weird dose because there isn't a max dose for analgesic effects of buprenorphine. So I was able to get the insurer to go with that. You guys want to comment on ketamine? Those of us in emergency medicine know that special K fixes everything. <laughs> and it's no surprise in this because micro, microdosing reduces the hyperalgesia uh, by antagonizing MDMA receptors. It potentiates the mu receptor for bup uh, signaling. It resensitizes that mu receptor and it also has the added benefit of decreasing depressive symptoms too. So very, very useful, as Rebecca was saying. Great. So we've got bup and more bup when this happens. Add your Ativan is a pretty generally um, well-accepted practice. And also, I want to make a disclaimer. We're not using brand names to be loyal to anybody. We're all just used to the ones we have in our hospitals. So when we say Ativan, lorazepam, you know, whatever you have on formulary, any benzodiazepine is great. Um, we're seeing some success with uh, ketamine, especially like Dr. Trotsky saying, in person though, like while they're here with you in the emergency department, while they're in the hospital setting, that's a more controlled um, adjunct that we're using. And then when we're talking about 
these, these dosing levels, yes, you might need to get higher. Don't be afraid of that, you know, but you're still going to follow the algorithm. You're going to give like 16 milligrams, wait a little while, you know, give, give some more after an hour, give some more, follow your patient's body and don't be afraid of doses that hit 48 um, 62 that, that, or 64. I can't do math either. <laughs> uh, but don't be afraid of these higher doses. And then, yeah, that patient might need to go home on maybe 32 milligrams twice a day, you know, might be the right dose for that patient of buprenorphine. So you've got to just tailor it to that person. Um, one thing that Dr. Pilar says that I love um, is that we have to normalize the experience in our language, but you also have to personalize it. You have to let it be unique to whatever it is for that patient. So we don't have a ton of time left here. What would be your number one take-home point, each of you, if you could send somebody home about precipitated withdrawal, what would it be? Uh, well, for me, I'm assuming everyone is using fentanyl, knowingly or unknowingly. And for me, uh, as, a, as a ER doc for many years, anticipating worst-case scenarios, I, I don't, I'm not, I don't want to wait for the patient to become worse. So that's where I've been promoting our practice at my site of this front loading with uh, Ativan plus or minus clonidine plus the, the uh, bup, the high dose bup. And then getting my son involved, my, my substance use navigator and making sure the patient goes home with Narcan. Yes, yes. What about you, Dr. I, Dr. Trotsky? I try to avoid the whole concept of precipitated withdrawal and say, we are going to treat you and your symptoms as best as we can. And we're going to do this well together. And really reframing the fear and, and anxiety that both clinicians and some community members have around precipitated withdrawal. Your first day may be a little rocky. Your second day might be a little, a little less rocky. Your third day is going to be awesome. And you're going to feel so much better. You're going to come back in a week and you're going to thank us all for having a whole new life ahead of you. And, you know, thank you for working with us through this first day or two. And we'll, we'll work with you to make it as good as possible. And that's how I frame it. And I really try to do my best to avoid the phraseology of precipitated withdrawal. Cause once you say that, you're like, Oh my God, what is that? That sounds horrible. Like jumping off a cliff. Oh my God, I don't want to do that. <laughs> right. So if you're like, you go through withdrawal a couple times a week and you, you are so great. And I'm so happy that you're here and we're going to make this so much better than it was last time. Let's try it again. You know? Yeah. And, and that really has been helpful. Other really important things that we've talked about. This is rare. Do not confuse ongoing withdrawal with precipitated, true, big, bad, pow in the face, precipitated withdrawal. Talk to your patient honestly. Take that time. Be empathetic. Do some prep work in your relationship building before you start medication. If it does happen to you, bup and more bup. Consider adding a little bit of lorazepam or benzodiazepine. Watch for other things coming down the pipeline. And if you get stuck, you have us. So there's all these resources here. You can see the QR code. We've got lots of a new FAQ on fentanyl, tons of information there. You also have access to that uh, 24-hour warm line, provider warm line, where you can get expert opinion within an hour to help you. Um, and then you can always request technical assistance from our team if you need help for your specific hospital. You need education. You have something that your providers are bringing up and you need an expert. Reach out to us. We will be there for you. And there are lots of different ways that you can connect with us on social media. You can see our old stuff on YouTube, whatever you want. We will talk about so many more of these topics in the future. Keep those questions coming. Here's ways to get a hold of us. And thank you so much for being here. Number one, big take-home point, treat the patient. Matt saves lives. Don't be afraid of doing MAT. Start the patients on buprenorphine, and we will be here to support you through it. Thanks, everybody. Peace. That's it for today. 
Hopefully you are feeling less worried and more confident about treating patients who use fentanyl with MAT. Because if the worst case happens and your patient does have precipitated withdrawal, you can handle it. How? With buprenorphine, bup and more bup, and some adjuncts like lorazepam, which can help ease that process for them. But we are definitely not done with this learning. So for a full list of upcoming trainings and more on fentanyl, head to cabridge.org and click on training. You can also find our clinical resources, including a brand new fentanyl FAQ on the resources page of our website. Again, that's cabridge.org. Do you need technical assistance or have any other questions that we didn't answer today? We're here for you. Connect with us through the CA Bridge website or email us at info at cabridge.org. Thank you to Dr. Rebecca Trotsky and Dr. Ed Pilar for sharing their wisdom with us, to Marco Gonzalez, our sound engineer for this episode, and to all of you. Thank you for being here and doing this work with us. We'll see you next time. California Bridge is a program of the Public Health Institute, which promotes health, well-being, and quality of life for people throughout California, across the nation, and around the world. Copyright California Department of Healthcare Services.